Hi, my name is Brian and I'm the pastor of Vision at Holy City Church. I'm glad that you found our online sermon resources and I pray that the Lord would use them to strengthen your faith. I would exhort you not to use our online sermon resources as a substitute for regular involvement in your own local church. That being said, I pray that our teaching resources would be helpful to you and conform you even more into the image of Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, 5 through 18. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Uh, this morning we're going to look at Hebrews 2, 5 to 18, but we're going to really hone in on one particular verse, uh, and that is Hebrews 2, verse 10. So let me, let me read it one more time, and then, and then we'll jump into it. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The 5th century B.C., Greek playwright Euripides, uh, popularized the mythical story of Hercules, Admetus, and Alcetus. Admetus was a good, gentle king over a small Greek province who unwittingly aided the Greek god Apollos for over a year. As a thankful response, the story goes, 
Apollo helped King Admetus uh, to secure the hand of his love, the princess Alcetus, in marriage, despite her father's opposition. And as a wedding present to the happy couple, Apollo gave King Admetus uh, a form of conditional immor uh, immortality. If Admetus ever found himself on his deathbed, he would be restored back to full health in the event that someone volunteered to die in his place. King Admetus and Queen Alcetus ruled happily together for many years, but one day the king became ill, deathly ill. And everyone close to him in his court remembered Apollo's gift, but no one would volunteer to die in the king's place. No one would die in, his, in the king's place, not even his elderly parents. But his loving bride, Queen Alcetus, volunteers herself. Queen Alcetus dies. King Admetus is restored to full health. And shortly thereafter, just by coincidence, the Greek demigod, half man, half god, Hercules drops by to see his old friends, Admetus and Alcetus. And upon hearing the story of his friend's death, Hercules travels to the underworld and finds Thanatos, uh, death, and leading Queen Alcetus' spirit into Hades, the place or the realm of the dead. Hercules then wrestles and defeats death, freeing Queen Alcetus, and this is contrary to the will of the fates. The Greek fates were the three sister goddesses of destiny. King Admetus and Queen Alcetus are reunited, interestingly, after a, a three-day sh uh, shadowy period uh, where Alcetus must be silent and purified. But after those three days, the happy couple live from that point on happily ever after until eventually Thanatos, death, comes and takes them both to the realm of the dead, Hades. And this myth is a story about a substitutionary death that brings life for another person. And Hercules is the son of Zeus, the chief god of Olympus, the home of the Greek gods. Hercules is half man, half god. He's the champion of the Greek people. And he wrestles and overcomes death in order to lead his friend out of death and to glor glorious reunion with her beloved. And it's fascinating how the world, whether it's Greek or American or Hindu or whatever, Greek or pagan myths, try to provide counterfeit gospels even hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. In Hebrews 2, 5 to 18, particularly verse 10, the author teaches us of another champion, another forerunner, founder, champion, originator of a perfect salvation, the incarnate Son of God. Unlike Hercules, our champion won't be half man and half God. That's heretical. He's not going to be the son of one of Zeus's adulterous relationships. He would be the only begotten son of God, very God of very God, 
who emptied himself by taking upon flesh and becoming truly and fully man. 100% God, 100% man. Unlike Hercules, our champion wouldn't simply wrestle death to get one person back. He would put death to death, never to return, and he would save his people. Unlike Hercules, our champion won't save contrary to the will of the gods, but in accordance with the will of the one true God, for whom and by whom all things exist. Unlike Admetus, our champion won't be a king who needs someone to die for him. He is a king who will die in order to bring many undeserving sons and daughters to glory. The only true champion of the world has been and forever will be our Lord, the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ. So this morning, as we're thinking about his first advent and as we think about his second advent, we just have one point this morning, one primary focus in verse 10, and it's this. Trust Jesus, the incarnate Son and Savior, who represents you before God. Trust Jesus, the incarnate Son and Savior, who represents you before God. One more time for the sake of my oldest daughter. Trust Jesus, the incarnate Son and Savior, who represents you before God. So this week we're going to be looking a lot at the reality of the incarnate Son being our representative before God. Because if we don't understand his representation, we're not going to understand the rest of the chapter, particularly his work as our high priest, which, Lord willing, next, next Sunday we will finish the rest of chapter 2. So as a recap, for context, the author of Hebrews is writing, writing to saints who are overwhelmingly, if not exclusively, Jewish in ethnicity and background. These Jewish Christians likely live in Rome, and they're suffering for the sake of Jesus to such a degree. They are suffering for the faith that they, the new faith that they have now professed in this new covenant Savior, Jesus Christ, that they are genuinely tempted to go back to the old covenant. And just say, no, I'm, I'm just Jewish. I'm not a Jewish Christian, just Jewish. Thus far, the author has spent Hebrews 1 and 2 showing us the absolute superiority of the Son of God over and against all other things. The Son is superior in revelation. He is himself, the fullness of God's revelation. He is God revealing himself. He is the fulfillment of all of God's Old Testament promises as well as Old Testament types and expectations. The Son is the promised King. He is the promised Son of David of 2 Samuel 7 who is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven after making purification for sins. The Son is the promised offspring of Abraham. He is the royal Son of David. He is the one who has inherited a more excellent name than the angels. You remember Genesis 12, Genesis 15? 
The Lord promises to Abraham, I will make your name great. The Lord promises to David, I will make your name great. We hear the author of Hebrews here saying, this son, the offspring, the son of these two men, has inherited a more excellent name than angels. The son is supreme to angels primarily because he is the one who created angels. He is the creator. He created angels to minister on his behalf to his people. The Mosaic Covenant given to Israel at Sinai was mediated by angels. We saw a couple of places in the New Testament, Acts 7 and in Galatians 3-4. Mosaic Covenant was given to Israel at Sinai, mediated through angels, and this Old Covenant demanded swift and just retribution against those covenant members who disobeyed it. And if that's the case, the author argues... If the Old Covenant, which was mediated by angels who were created by the Son and who were much lower than Him, if, if swift retribution came for Old Covenant members when they disobeyed, how much more so, how much more terrible will the judgment and retribution be for those of us who are part of the New Covenant, mediated by the Son of God Himself, who created the angels... If we fall away, if we drift away, how much more terrible will the judgment be for us if the judgment for the old covenant was itself terrible? How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This far better new covenant of the superior son is the only hope that humanity has. So don't go back to that which pointed to him. Don't go back to an old covenant which the Son has fulfilled. Don't go back to a covenant that the Son has replaced. Don't go back to a covenant that has been abrogated, tossed away, and has become obsolete. Therefore, Christian, don't drift away. Don't drift away. Don't forsake the son who bought you. That's through two, chapter 2, verse 4. But the son, the author continues in 2, 5 to 9, as we looked at uh, two, three weeks back, is himself the fulfillment of Adam and David. Author of Hebrews looks at Psalm 8. That's originally talking about Adam, but it's written by David, and David's talking about himself also. The Son of God was made a little lower than the angels through his incarnation. The Son of God as God is not lower than the angels, but the Son of God as a man was made lower than the angels for a little while. But he has been exalted through his death. By becoming fully and truly man, the Son fulfilled the blessing commands of Genesis 1, 26-28. Adam disobeyed God. Sin and death entered into the world. All of creation came under God's curse. We'll remember this from Genesis 3. Humanity's dominion over the earth was frustrated. Humanity was itself corrupted and polluted by our sin and disobedience. But the Son, the Son of God, the incarnate Son, is the true and last Adam. He was obedient to God's covenant commands in the face of temptation from the devil. 
He is the covenant head of the coming world, the new creation. King David, the greatest of Israel's kings, was himself a moral failure, even though he was a man after God's own heart. And after David, none of his sons, none of David's sons measured up to his reign. They were all far worse, by and large. It only took two generations, and the kingdom of Israel was torn into two. The northern kingdom of Israel became idolaters until the exile. Old covenant people, Israel, and then eventually Judah, were thrown into exile because of their awful leaders, terrible kings, terrible shepherds, terrible high priests, and because of their unrepentant sin. But what the author of Hebrews is teaching us is that the incarnate Son of God is the greater David. He is the one who has defeated the enemies of God's people. And we'll see that next week as we talk about defeating Satan. The Son is the one who brings God's presence and rest and rule to his new covenant people. We'll see more of that in Hebrews 3 and 4. King Jesus makes his people obedient and faithful by his shed blood and resurrected body. We don't conjure up faithfulness and obedience by our own efforts. The Lord makes us new from the inside out through the work of his spirit, applying the work of his son to our lives according to the will of the Father. This promised son of Adam and David, Jesus Christ, he has brought to fulfillment the prophetic words of David, Psalm 8. God was mindful of Jesus, the incarnate son. He was mindful of Jesus, the man, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, but who has now been crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering of death. He is the king of the new creation because he is the first man of the new creation. Because if you don't know the end of the story, he, he walked out of the tomb on the third day. He is the first fruits of the new creation. All things are being put in, subject, uh, in subjection under King Jesus' feet because of his suffering of death. So by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Which brings us to verse 10. And verse 10 flows out of the thought introduced in verse 9, specifically the phrase, for it is fitting, and verse 10 is connected back to the phrase, by the grace of God, in verse 9. So the perfect character of God, his perfect expressions of his attributes of love, holiness, and justice being displayed in both his gracious mercy and his severe judgment against sin have been revealed in his gracious plan to provide the way by which his people would be forgiven and the wicked judged. Based on all of the realities about God's plan, based on all of the realities of who God is, the author of Hebrews has, has either told us or outlined or implied for us, he's telling us now, it, it, knowing who God is, knowing his plan of redemption, it is fitting that God, the one for whom and by whom all things exist, should make the incarnate Son, Jesus, perfect or, or complete through suffering. By perfecting His Son, the founder, the forerunner, the champion of our salvation, through suffering, 
God has brought many sons and daughters to glory. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack in this particular verse. So we're going to go phrase by phrase. The author's use of four here is explanatory. Okay, he wants, to, he wants to explain to the readers the logic of God's grace being expressed through the incarnate Son, tasting death for everyone, in verse 9. So the he, it was fitting that he, the he here is clearly God. He is not only connected to God who has shown us grace from verse 9, but the author says that he, God, is the one for whom and by whom all things exist. So this nuanced clause, this qualification, describes God in two different ways. First, God is the one by whom all things exist. God is the creator of all things. So immediately there's a creator-creature distinction. God is God. We are not. He is the one who's created all things. We are creatures. We are products of his creative work. Everything in creation finds its origins in him which, if we think about sin, explains why sin de- demands such a terrible judgment. The creator, or the creatures rebelling against the perfect creator. So the author of Hebrews has already explained to us in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, that the Son was the, was the agent of creation, the one through whom all things were created, and by whom the universe is sustained by the word of his power. Right? So we know that the Father, Son, and Spirit have worked perfectly together in all of creation, inseparably, to create and to sustain everything that exists. But the primary point here is that we humans can only find our meaning and our purpose when we first acknowledge that it is God who created us. We aren't products of random chance and mutations over billions of years. The author has just quoted Psalm 8 to us. What is man that you are mindful of him? Thinking of the absolute incomprehensible transcendence of God. What is is man that you are mindful of him? But then David says... You made him. You made him for a little while, but what's important for us here is you made him. Humanity, as well as the rest of all creation, is a product, an overflow of God's perfect love and creative ability, overflowing into the universe, exploding into existence by his word. Our moral rebellion doesn't negate the fact that we are God's creatures and God created us in his image. That image bearing has been marred, it's been corrupted, it's been polluted, but we haven't lost it. Nor does our sin negate the fact that we were created by God for particular purposes. The second, second phrase here, God is the one for whom all things exist. Humanity was created in God's image in order to enjoy right covenant relationship with our God and to serve as his vice regents, his ambassadors, his representatives to the rest of the world. Adam and Eve ruined it through their moral rebellion, their sin. Of course, we would have 
If any one of us had been there, we would have done the same thing. They ruined it through their moral rebellion. Each of us has not only inherited Adam's guilt and his condemnation for sin, but we ourselves are pretty good at doing things that we should not do. You, you parents, aunts, uncles, I mean, grandparents, don't have to keep, teach kids how to disobey. We have to work for years to teach our children. This is how you obey. Why? Because our natural disposition in Adam is corruption and rebellion. All things exist for him. That is crucial to understand. All things exist for him. Despite our best efforts in arguing to the contrary, the world and all of the rest of creation is centered not on humanity, but on God. You exist not primarily for you, but for God. Your spouse exists not primarily for you, but for God. Your kids exist not primarily for you, but for God. You've been given a job or schoolwork not primarily for you, but for God. This local church exists not primarily for us, but for God. Human history is not ultimately centered on our achievements or our events or our cultures and civilizations or our dreams and aspirations or our goals. Human history is centered on God for whom all things exist. So, any of you kids who have a telescope and you look out into the night sky and you see these amazing constellations, you need to understand God made that for God. And then when you look in the mirror, you need to say, God made me for Him. We live, we work, and we play as unto God because God is the one for whom all things exist. So how is that reflected? For whom all things exist, how is that reflected in your calendar? How is that reflected in your TV watching? How is that reflected in your time in the Word, your interactions with your kids, your relationship with your spouse? Does your life communicate, I am for God? 
I am for him. I belong to him. Everything I am is unto him for service to him. And how much is, is it? I'm, I'm here to, I'm here a little bit for me. I'm here to have a good time. Each of us came out of the womb firmly convinced that the world existed and centered around us. I mean, that thinking was only strengthened by the fact that every time we cried, there were these two people who ran to us and gave us whatever it was that we wanted at the moment. Our parents lived at our beck and call until we're like 30, <laughs> right? You are tempted to believe that you are the central actor in what you believe is your story, your own equivalent of the Truman Show. You think that you are that man, whether you know it or not. That is the disposition of the flesh. How many of our problems, our relational issues, our sin, our fights, our arguments pop up because we believe that our lives are primarily about us? Too many. But it's not about us. It's about God. The one for whom all things exist. The universe, all of creation, is theocentric. Not you-centric, not me-centric, God-centric. So if all of creation occurred by God's work and for God's purposes, the author writes, then it's fitting that God's grace would manifest itself through the obedient life, death, and resurrection of the incarnate Son in order to bring many sons and daughters to glory. It makes sense that knowing Knowing that God created all things, knowing God is the center of human history, knowing God made mankind for a purpose, knowing God had a plan to redeem sinful, broken humanity, to remake us, to accomplish that which he purposed for us, knowing all of that, it is fitting that the incarnate Son would be perfected through suffering unto death in order to bring us to glory. Knowing God's character, we know that God is perfectly loving, holy, just, righteous, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present, unchanging, undivided, etc., etc. And as such, our rebellion against him would warrant his perfect justice expressed in eternal, unflinching, indescribably terrifying wrath, perfect wrath against sin and us sinners. And God had every right to destroy us. And he would have remained just had he not willed to offer us salvation. He would have remained just had he not willed to provide us a Savior and consequently to pour out his inexhaustible wrath on us because of our moral rebellion that God did will to save us. He planned to save us from sin and death from before creation. Father, Son, and Spirit, living in perfect relationship with, within the triune Godhead, made a covenant to redeem us from sin and death. And as such, God revealed himself to his people as a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Since God is the author of all 
of human history, and since all of human history centers around him and his plan to redeem his people from sin, through the work of his son, it is fitting in order that many sons and daughters be brought to glory, God should make the founder of our salvation, our champion, our prince, our founder and forerunner, perfect through suffering, including the suffering of death, tasting death for everyone. If God is going to be perfectly good and holy and loving and sin and moral rebellion must be punished, all right, sin must be judged. Death must occur because sin merits death. But if God is going to be merciful and gracious and forgive sinners, which he didn't have to do, but he decided to do, he willed to do it, God will both have, have to both punish sin, moral rebellion, and then somehow let sinners in his presence. God will have to forgive lawlessness while simultaneously upholding his own moral character and law. God can't sweep sin under the rug. That's unjust. A wicked judge lets wicked people off scot-free. We, we all know that, except when we think about ourselves. Right? Of course, that murderer should be convicted, but me, I'm a, yeah, I've lied a few times, right? Not that bad. But compared to whom? Who are you wanting to live with? The murderer? Because you're in great company. The Lord of glory, who is unspeakably holy and perfect, you ruin that party. So how can a wicked people who have disobeyed God's law be reckoned by people as a people who have obeyed his law perfectly, as God's character requires? How can it be that wicked people can not only escape God's judgment against our lawlessness, but be transformed into a holy people who also have the righteousness of God, which, which is what heaven and the new creation requires because God is there. Theologians have called this the problem of forgiveness. Did you know that there was a problem with forgiveness? It's internal to God. I mean, the problem is that you're, you're awful. I'm awful, apart from the Lord's grace. But this problem of forgiveness, how can sinners be simultaneously judged and forgiven? Guilty and yet justified. Sinful and yet holy. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son. It's what we celebrate. Without the Son becoming incarnate, we have no hope. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, meaning not by works of the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to this righteousness of God apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. We'll talk about that next week. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He had not crushed all of Israel, though they deserved it. He had forgiven them. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans 3, 21-26. It is fitting that the incarnation and death of the Son of God would be the means of atonement and accomplishing God's redemptive purposes. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. It is fitting that he would do it this way. It is fitting that he would save his people and bring many to glory through the suffering of his Son, the incarnate Son. It is fitting that the incarnate Son suffered death because the penalty of sin is death. It is fitting that the incarnate Son learned obedience and was perfected through his sufferings because we need his perfect record of righteousness. We need it credited to us. Not through our ability to keep the law. We can't. As soon as you get a law, you're like, ooh, I want to disobey it. But through faith alone in Christ alone. So I don't want to gloss over the fact that a crucified Savior, even though the author of Hebrews says it's fitting that God would do it this way. I don't want to gloss over the fact that, that the author of Hebrews and the entire canon of Scripture is saying this is how it's got to happen. I don't want to gloss over that without looking at how does the world respond to that? Author of Hebrews says it's fitting that God would do it this way. It's the way that it had to be done. Because the fact that God, the Son of God, is our Savior as a crucified Savior is completely antithetical to the wisdom of the world. The author explains that God's plan of redemption through the suffering of his incarnate son makes sense to us who have been changed by God, but it makes no sense to the world. No sense to the world. Jesus was continually rejected by the Jews of his day because many of them were totally convinced that they were justified by keeping the old covenant law. I mean, I'm going to be with God because I keep his laws. And then to... To believe that God would fulfill his Old Testament promises to become a man and save his people? Yeah, I mean, I believe that that's what Isaiah and the Psalms and the prophets are talking about. This son of David who's going to be God, very God of very God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who's going to have a, a, he's going to sit on the throne forever, and only God does that. So I believe that. But then in John 10, the Pharisees get ready to stone Jesus. Why? Jesus is like, uh, so what good deed are you uh, stunning me for today? For blasphemy, because you, Jesus, being a man, make yourself God. I mean, isn't that what the scriptures said? So when the scriptures are fulfilled, they don't believe it. So, so even the Jew, Jewish religious teachers weren't expecting God to come down and become a man in order to save his people. 
even though the Old Testament is replete with evidence, that Yahweh would do exactly that. The Greek and Romans of Jesus' day trusted in their good works and then sacrifices to capricious gods who, who could fly off the handle at any moment, and so you're just offering sacrifices in order to assuage them and, and possibly treat them kind of like a genie. It's all about manipulation. These gods were ordinarily totally unconcerned with humanity, but who at times would involve themselves for their own selfish purposes, like Zeus liked to sleep with lots of women and have lots of kids by human wives or human women. But there's no grace, there's no redemption, there's no dealing with sin and rebellion, totally dependent upon good works in order to be in good standing when you encountered death and you stood for judgment. Christians were totally mocked for this absolutely ridiculous idea of a crucified God, a ludicrous notion in 1st, 2nd, 3rd century Rome. There is, there is a, a piece of graffiti that is nearly 2,000 years old from Rome that shows a picture of a man standing next to a cross, and there is a man on the cross with the head of a donkey. And the picture has the caption that says, Aleximenos worships his God. He's talking about Jesus. Roman Alex was a Christian. And these guys are mocking him because his God is a God who's on a cross with a donkey's head. Second, third centuries our second, third century father, church father Tertullian addressed what seemed to be a common insult in the Roman Empire during his day. In this matter, we, Christians, are said to be guilty not merely of forsaking the religion of the community, but of introducing a monstrous superstition. For some among you have dreamed that our God is an ass's head. The idea of God becoming man and being crucified to save his people was roundly mocked in the Roman Empire. And today, millions of religiously faithful Orthodox Jews are convinced they'll go to heaven with God based upon their ability to keep hundreds and hundreds of old covenant laws without having a Levitical, Levitical sacrificial system in order to atone for their sins. Millions of Muslims today believe that they will be justified by Allah because their good deeds outweigh their bad. And many of them are tempted to be radical Islamists because that guarantees them paradise. Millions of people today across the world believe, like the Romans and the Greeks, believe that they can manipulate spirits or tribal local deities in order to gain favor or things from these fickle gods. Even Roman Catholicism argues that you are justified before God, not on the basis of faith alone in Christ, but upon faith in Christ, plus keeping the sacraments. In a world that is convinced that the world is primarily about us and reconciliation with God is accomplished solely through our efforts, the gospel of Jesus Christ makes no sense. But it was, it was fitting for God, for whom by, and by whom all things exist, it was fitting that God would make Jesus perfect through suffering in order to bring many sons and daughters to glory. But what in the world does it mean for God 
to make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. What in the world? It does not mean that the Son of God became morally perfect. It does not mean moral perfection. Jesus didn't grow in moral perfection at the, at the expense of sounding heretical. There was no time in the Son's incarnation where he was morally deficient. He was born without sin, and he died without sin, and he was raised without sin. He wasn't born in sin by the, mirac- the miraculous virgin birth. He didn't inherit a sin nature from Adam. He didn't battle against evil, fleshly, internal desires like we do. The Son of God started morally perfect, and He finished the race morally perfect. That's the kind of Savior that we need. The Son was perfected, or completed, not morally, but vocationally. What what do I mean by that? God used suffering as part of the process by which the Son, Jesus Christ, was perfected in serving as our merciful, faithful, and incarnate high priest. He was perfected as our representative. He was perfected as our high priest. That's why the author of Hebrews later in the chapter can say, because he himself was suffered when he was tempted, he Like he can be gracious and merciful towards those who are tempted. As the one who brought Psalm 8 to fulfillment, Christ is now the Savior of his brothers by virtue of his incarnation and suffering. It is through his suffering and temptations that particularly enable the Son to help those who likewise suffer and are tempted. Similar to the way that the Levitical priests were consecrated, they were set apart with blood and offerings and incense. They were set apart for, they were prepared for priestly work in the tabernacle or the temple. They had to undergo cleansing for themselves. They had to go through particular sacrifices and and purification rituals so that they then might stand for and represent the people before God. God has consecrated Christ for high priestly service on our behalf. But rather than rubbing blood on an earlobe, his body was broken. Rather than sprinkling blood on the side of the Holy of Holies, his blood was spilt. He was consecrated. He was set apart. He was prepared for priestly work on our behalf. Not through cleansing and sacrifices for himself. He needed none but through suffering as a perfect man on our behalf. Christ's incarnation, his struggles against sufferings and temptations during his life and ministry, his suffering of death under God's wrath, his later exaltation, his glorification, are all vital components of him being perfected as our high priest. It is precisely by these experiences of hardship and suffering on earth as the incarnate son that qualified Jesus to enter into God's presence as our high priest, our representative, and our advocate. You, you, you have an advocate before the Father. It, it's not what you did this morning. 
It's not what you did last night. It's not what you did two weeks ago that you can't seem to get over, that you feel the condemnation of the enemy or your flesh. That is not what speaks for you. There is a living, perfect, crucified and risen incarnate son who speaks on your behalf. And that's why the author of Hebrews is not going to say, hey, so you should be confident when you pray. He's not going to say that. He is going to say, be confident when you pray. Not because of how well you're doing, but because of how well he did. It was fitting that God would perfect the Son, the incarnate Son, through suffering in order to bring us to glory. The representation we have in Jesus is one of unmatched glory and immeasurable grace. The Son, though He enjoyed glory and honor and unceasing worship in heaven, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that we by his poverty might become rich. The incarnate son came to serve, not to be served. He came to heal the sick, free those imprisoned to sin, save image bearers from enslavement to the devil. Though he was the promised king, he submitted to the cursed cross. When you look at the world, you don't see anything remotely close to that kind of humility in our political representation. In a day where the majority of members of Congress are millionaires and our political leaders and their families and friends are raking in tens of millions of dollars through insider trading and corruption, political quid pro quos, the church must remember that the most important representation we enjoy is the incarnate Son standing on our behalf before our Heavenly Father who calls us sons and daughters because he wants to and because he can through the high priestly work of his son. His representation has gained us every benefit of salvation that we enjoy and will enjoy in the future new creation. This God-given representative came to perfectly obey as a man Angels couldn't die for us and save us. They couldn't bear God's wrath. If it was an angel that had been put on a cross, that angel would still be under God's wrath. A creature can't sustain the wrath of God. Certainly not represent us. But this God-given representative came to obey perfectly as a man through his God-given suffering, on our behalf, and through his suffering, he was qualified to stand for us and with us. And he's been given a throne and a kingdom. And in Daniel 7, when it's talking about the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days gives to him a kingdom. What does that Son of Man do? After he defeats his enemies, he turns around and he gives the kingdom to his people. So this son of man, this this son of David, this promised king who is perfected through his sufferings, 
who is risen and reigning even now. He has been given a throne and a kingdom that he both desires to and will share with each of you who are in Christ. You will receive a kingdom because you've been united to Christ by faith. As the better Moses, the forerunner, champion of our salvation, Jesus is leading many sons and daughters to glory. I think the author of Hebrews is picking up on, the, on Mosaic language, and he's about to talk about Moses at the very beginning of chapter 3. When he's talking about being a forerunner, founder, champion of our salvation, leading many sons and daughters to glory, we can't help, for a Jewish audience, they're going to immediately think, okay, in the Exodus... Moses led many sons and daughters of Abraham out of slavery to Egypt. But he couldn't lead them into the promised land. Man, even when Joshua got there, Hebrews 4, they didn't have rest. But, but in the new and better Exodus, Jesus, the incarnate son, he leads many sons and daughters of Abraham out of slavery to sin and death. And he leads them into the glory of the new creation with God, this coming kingdom that he's the king of. Author of Hebrews is a phenomenal preacher and sermon writer, just FYI. <laughs> now, in case the reader misunderstands, I just want to make this point because he says it and if we read it, Superficially, we might misunderstand it. In case the reader misunderstands the author's point in verse 9, when he says the son might, says that the son might taste death for everyone, okay, he nuances the point in verse 10 by stating that everyone refers to many sons and daughters. Okay, we're not talking about universalism here. Okay, and he's, all of this is couched within the context of, of a Levitical high priest and Levitical sacrificial system, okay? So the Levitical high priest, he didn't offer sacrifices for the Assyrians. He didn't offer sacrifices for the Babylonians. He didn't do it for the Romans. Who did the high priest represent? He had 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel. He represented God's people, and he offered sacrifices on their behalf, okay? What was the problem? He was a sinner. He kept dying, his sacrifices couldn't change the people, couldn't take away sin, couldn't make them obedient. And as we look at Hebrews 5 to 8, we're going to see Jesus totally changes all that by being a priest, not after the order of Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek. So, the everyone here, many sons and daughters. Okay? One, one scholar rightly notes... The humiliation and death of Christ are fitting because this was the effective means of bringing many sons to glory. The redeemed are described as sons, not in their own right, but by virtue of their union with him who is the only son and with whom alone God is well-pleased. You get the well-pleased because you've been united to the son. Jesus has gone before us as the forerunner the pioneer, the founder, the champion of our salvation. Because he has gone first, he has made a way for us to be reconciled to the God who made us for himself, and he is leading us there. Through his suffering, Christ has led us to glory. So, 
We suffer for Christ not in order to gain salvation, but as evidence of the salvation that we have been gifted by the grace of our salvation champion, Christ Jesus. Next week, we're going to, Lord willing, we'll look more at the reality of suffering because he's writing these things to people who are suffering grievously. And he's writing 2, 11 to 18 so that these sufferers will understand that Jesus understands. And he's with them. The incarnate Son has led us to salvation, beloved. And that is what we rejoice as we look back at the first advent, even as we look forward to the second advent. Though through his obedient work and suffering as our high priest, he has won us to God. We stand justified, declared not guilty before God because we have been united to the Savior by faith. We are hidden in him so that when God looks at us, he sees his son. And what's true of, of, of the son is true of us. So now, because God has willed to save sinners, and because he has willed and decreed that he would save sinners through the incarnation of his son, and he has decreed that he would save all of you who are united to Christ by faith, he can't destroy the universe by fire. He cannot keep any one of you who are united to, faith, uh, united to Christ by faith, he cannot keep any of you out of heaven as if he would want to. Why? Because whatever is true of the Son is true of you. You have as right, you have as much right to intimacy with the Father as the incarnate Son. Not because of your works, but because of our salvation champion. We stand justified before God because of this Jesus. We have been sanctified and are being sanctified by this incarnate Son. We will be glorified like Christ in the new creation at the return of the incarnate Son. We enjoy the full forgiveness of sins and immeasurable grace through this perfected Son. We have been regenerated and converted and dwelt by the Spirit through the perfect work of our salvation champion. So, let us rejoice. Let us rejoice that the incarnate Son has led us to glory by first being perfected through his sufferings as our high priest. May God cause us to rejoice in the champion of our salvation, the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ, as we eagerly wait in hope for his second advent, his return where he will usher in the fullness of the new creation.